0: Hello everyone and welcome to the second sermon in our series on the book of Romans. My name is Dan Forrest and it was an absolute joy for me to join Jonathan in going through our last series on the book of Genesis and I'm going to be honest I'm not super excited to go through the book of Romans but don't feel too bad, too bad for me because as we will soon learn from the Romans, suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character and character produces hope. Therefore, I am looking forward to growing in my perseverance, character, and hope as we journey through this book together. Well, Before we get started, we're going to watch a clip from one of my favorite TV shows, Parks and Rec. Uh, Netflix has recently gotten the rights to stream the show again, so Amy and I have been watching it every night. We just love it. And in the clip that you're about to see, Leslie Nope has written a book about her birthplace and her favorite town, Pawnee, Indiana. She goes on the Pawnee Today show and she's going to be promoting her book, hoping that Joan Calamezzo will give her the coveted Joan Book Club sticker. Take a look. Right here, I have a sticker, which when applied, legally determines the newest selection of Joan's book club. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oh, 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 where's it? Over here. Oh. Back here. <laughs> where's it? No. Come on, Come on. stick on. it. take <laughs> oh, um, Stick on. the sticker. Stick no, the no, no, no. Not it, so fast. Put it on. We received a tip that you, Leslie, born and raised Nope, were not born in Pawnee. What? Gotcha! And because you lied about it, we cannot make this a book club selection. I was born in Pawnee. I'd stake my reputation on it. I have to tell you, this feels like gotcha journalism. In what way? That way. You put gotcha on my face. After the break, where is Leslie Knope actually born? Pawnee! We will pull out the world map and speculate wildly. Gotcha. (laughs) Leslie was hoping for an endorsement, and instead she fell into the trap of gotcha journalism. Well, in our section of Romans today, Romans 1, 18 to two sixteen, Paul pulls a little bit of a gotcha on his readers, which we're going to discover later in this sermon. Well, today there are three main topics that I want to look at from our passage, and those are wrath, gays and lesbians, and judgment. Saying those three to- topics out loud sounds pretty horrible, especially when you put them together like that. But these are the topics that Paul addresses, and they're the ones that we need to unpack. Oh, why did I sign up to preach on this passage? Okay, without further ado, let's talk about wrath. Romans 1.18 The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so the people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay, so our passage starts off by saying the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Well, the wrath of God is a very difficult concept for us humans to understand. In fact, for thousands of years, Christians, theologians, priests, authors, pastors, bishops, nuns have wrestled and disagreed about what is meant by the wrath of God. One of the main questions that comes up is, does God even experience emotions? God's not human. He's an omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent being who transcends all space and time. Would such a being experience any emotions at all even? And if that being did, well, they would certainly be different than the emotions that humans feel. So anytime that we talk about emotions and God, There's no way of really knowing what God feels, if he feels anything at all. Well, next comes the problem of the specific emotion. What does wrath look like for God? Does God actually get angry? Or is he just acting and reacting to us in ways that appear like our human emotion of anger? Well, for me, I do believe that God feels emotions to some extent. I just don't think they can be like ours. We have chemical reactions in our bodies that manipulate our emotions. And we're also so limited in our understanding of the world around us and and the motivation of the people in our lives. We're so limited that we frighten easily. We, We get jealous easily. We fall in love with people and things that we shouldn't because we don't understand and know enough about these people or these things. But God has all knowledge all understanding. There are no surprises for him. There are no secrets for him. There are no miscommunications with him. So when it says that God feels wrath, that can't possibly be the same kind of wrath that we feel. When we hear the word wrath, we think of explosive anger. You know, think of lava and fire shooting out of a volcano. I've been tolerating what you've done for so long to me and I can't take it anymore. For us, wrath is often uncontrolled anger, and sometimes it's even irrational and erratic. But this can't be the wrath our God experiences. That type of wrath is what we see in pagan religions, where the gods have no care for creation, and they're selfless, and they're petty. They're the ones that display acts of capricious wrath on humanity. But the sweep of the Bible makes it clear That our God is not irrational, or vindictive, or petty, or that he can even lose control of his anger. Our God is patient. He is loving, compassionate, gracious, and slow to anger. So for our God, what is wrath? Well, I would argue that God's wrath is actually the exact same as his love. The only difference Is how you are oriented towards it. What do I mean by that? Well, let me give you an example. Have you ever heard of the chemical dihydrogen monoxide? Here's some fun facts about dihydrogen monoxide. It's also known as hydroxyl acid, and it's a major component of acid rain. It also contributes to the greenhouse effect, it it can cause severe burns, it contributes to the erosion of our natural landscape, it accelerates corrosion and rusting of many metals. It may cause electrical failures and decreased effectiveness of automobile brakes it has been found in excise tumors of terminal cancer patients and despite this danger dihydrogen monoxide is often used it's used as an industrial solvent and coolant in nuclear power plants in the production of styrofoam as a fire retardant in many forms of cruel animal research in the distribution of pesticides even after washing Produce remains contaminated by this chemical, and as an additive, it's in certain junk foods and other food products. Sounds pretty shocking, right? Except, dihydrogen monoxide also goes by the name H2O, which is water. Water is a chemical that, depending on your orientation to it, can either be healthy and necessary for life, or harmful and even lethal. Water going down my esophagus gives me life, but water going down my trachea kills me. Water is life or death, depending on your orientation towards it. The same is true for fire. Fire can give me warmth and cook my food, but it can also destroy my home and burn my body. Well, God is described as a consuming fire because when we're oriented towards him, We feel his love and warmth in our hearts. But when we are oriented away from him, we experience his wrath and our backs are burned. It's not like one minute God is loving and the next minute he's wrathful. He's actually both these things all the time. God does not change. What does change is our perception of God and our experience of God depending on our position. And that's exactly what Paul is saying in these verses. Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. I wanna give kudos to Jonathan for having us go through the book of Romans because we just went through Genesis, which... Paul is going to be talking about so much. He references Genesis all the time throughout the book of Romans, and here he is referencing Genesis again. In Genesis, we read that we are made in the image of God, and we are not supposed to worship images of God because we are his images. And we're also not supposed to worship or give our devotion to anything in creation over our Creator. But that's exactly what Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They allowed the created serpent to lead them away from their creator. And they ate from the forbidden tree in order to be equals with their creator. And as a result, their experience of God changed from love to wrath. And it's not like God came down in fire and anger. It says he simply walked amongst them like he had always done before. But now, instead of feeling his presence as love... Adam and Eve felt his presence as wrath, so they hid in the bushes in shame. Okay, so now that we've tackled the topic of wrath, let's move on to gays and lesbians. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged uh, natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Oh boy. Okay, here we go. In the whole Bible, these are the most explicit verses about homosexual behavior, and they have been used for hundreds of years as a clobber text. These two verses have been weaponized against people with same-sex attractions For way too long in my opinion and i personally think that that has been horribly unfair and damaging to so many people to gay people and also to straight people as well who have connections with gay people family members friends and the like i want to share my thoughts on these two verses and you might have strong opinions against me and i'm really actually happy to discuss them with you if you have a different opinion, and you really want to share it. So please get in touch with me if what I say is going to rub you the wrong way. Well, for starters, I want to say I don't think that Paul had the same understanding about same-sex attraction as we do today. When Paul heard about men sleeping with men and women sleeping with women, it's understandable that his mind first went to, this is against nature. As a Jewish thinker and one who is well-versed in Genesis, it is clear from creation that the natural order for sex is man with woman, not man with man or women with women. In that understanding, this is not natural. But our understanding of what is natural or not is not always agreed upon. Consider what Paul also wrote in his letter to the Corinthians. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? To us today, this verse seems ridiculous. A man having long hair is not a disgrace to him. I'm sure there have been many times in history where cultures have seen long hair on men as a disgrace. But that's certainly not the nature of things. I mean, almost all of our depictions of Jesus have him... In long hair, there's a problem there. Well, in our understanding today, gays and lesbians are born with natural attractions to people of the same sex. And I would argue that a lesbian woman is not exchanging her natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. I would argue that what was happening in Paul's day in Rome was heterosexuals engaging in homosexual behavior For reasons of lust and not love. And from my studies uh, on this topic, it appears as though this type of activity was common among people who were in power, like the Caesars or other leaders. It was also common at drunken parties, where people would engage in all kinds of activities for purposes of physical and sexual pleasure. What Paul is getting at here, engaging in lustful passions. I really don't think that in these two verses, Paul is talking about monogamous, loving, covenantal relationships. I believe that he was talking about people engaging in selfish and harmful behaviors. Now, you might totally disagree with me. You know, there might actually be other passages in the Bible that give a stronger case against uh, same-sex marriage. We're not going to go there because I don't think this passage goes there. And that would be up for another topic. But what I want to say here is what I said already. I think that what Paul is really getting at here is he's talking about people who are engaging in selfish and harmful behaviors. And let's look at the next verses to see how he furthers this argument. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do uh, so that they do what ought not to be done they have become filled with every kind of wickedness evil greed and depravity they are full of envy murder strife deceit and malice they are gossips slanderers god-haters insolent arrogant and boastful They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now I have to say, I have a bunch of friends and family who are gay or lesbian, who are in committed same-sex marriages. Some of them are single. Most of them are Christians and not one of these verses here describes the gay and lesbian people that I know. So if Paul is saying that all homosexual activity leads to this spiral of depravity, you know, murder, gossip, envy, strife, boy, I jumped to murder right away. (laughs) But these just like, this is a list of terrible things. Of all the people that I know who are gay and lesbian. I wouldn't say that this describes them at all. So if Paul is saying that homosexual activity leads to this spiral depravity, I would push back against him and say, where's the proof? I've not seen it in any of the people that I know. So Paul, where are you getting these conclusions? But that's the thing. I don't think Paul is making that argument. I think for me... Um, It's clear that Paul is not saying anything about same-sex attraction in these verses. That's not the heart of what he's talking about. I believe that we as Christians need to stop using these verses to condemn people. Because what's clear from these verses, verses 18 to 32, is that Paul is going along this argument against idolatry and turning our hearts and lives away from Jesus. When we take our eyes and devotion and love off of Jesus and turn to other things to find life and joy, we're not going to find them. We're instead going to find ourselves on this downward spiral of shame and destruction. So now what? What does this passage mean for us? And how should we treat people who are on this downward spiral? Well, remember how Paul started this whole section off by saying that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. So clearly it's time for judgment. And that's our third topic. I'm sure as the Roman Christians first started reading this letter from Paul, they were nodding their head vigorously with him as many people do today when they read this passage. Paul is just describing all the deplorable people in their community and they have been secretly judging them for some time. And now someone is finally pointing out what they've been thinking all along. Also remember what Jonathan was saying last week. In the Roman church there was a conflict between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. So certainly some of that judgment was being targeted towards the Gentiles who hadn't fully embraced the Jewish way of doing things. Much like some Christians today will look down on others who use drums because they'll they'll call them the devil's instrument. I've even heard that before. Or they'll look down on young people who are not dressing up when they come to church. Well, in this passage, notice all the times that it says they. There's this us versus them mentality that it seems like Paul is encouraging here, and it's one that we see in the church even today, an us-versus-them mentality. They're doing the wrong things. They're doing this. Can you believe they're doing that? And is Paul getting at that as well here? Sounds like he is, until we get to chapter 2, where he switches from they to you. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended lead you to repentance. Gotcha. All those people nodding their heads in chapter one should now have a look of shock and horror on their face as they now realize Paul is throwing them in the same boat as everybody else that they consider deplorable and depraved. All of us are judged by our relationship with the law and the law condemns you just as much as it condemns them. Last week, Jonathan pointed out that Paul wrote this letter to the Romans to unite the Christians in their belief in Jesus. You may have differences in style and practice, and even in some of your theological convictions, but we're all united in our belief that Jesus is Lord. Well, in our passage today and in the one next week that Jonathan's going to be unpacking, Paul will also be showing that the Roman Christians are united in their guilt. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all messed up. We all have it wrong. We're all in desperate need of Jesus to free us from the slavery of sin. We all need the Holy Spirit to turn our hearts and our loves back to God. So with this Gotcha moment. Paul is yelling, Stop judging each other. Stop condemning each other. You are all united in your failure to follow the law. Well, even if you disagree with me about those two verses that I talked about earlier, you have no right to condemn people with those verses. Because we're all guilty. There is no us versus them. We're all condemned according to the law. And Jonathan's going to share more about that next week, so I don't want to get into it too much more. But I do want to talk a little bit more about judgment to close this sermon off. What does God's judgment look like? Well, when we think of judgment, we think of our modern legal system. If I break a law, there is a punishment for the crime. You know, if I speed, if I go over the speed limit, I have to pay a fine. If I steal something to pay back what I stole and possibly a fine on top of that and I might even face some jail time or community service but if even if I commit but if I commit a horrible premeditated murder I go to prison for life or in some countries I face the death penalty this is our justice system I break the law therefore I get punished but God's judgment isn't like that Let's go back to Romans 1 and see how God passes judgment. Romans 1 24. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts, it says. Verse 26 says, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Verse 27, they received in themselves the due penalty for their error. And verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Again and again, it says, God gave them over. God's way of punishment is allowing us to experience the natural consequences of us turning away from Him. When we are oriented toward God, when we are seeking His face and His kingdom, we experience God as love and joy. But when we're oriented away from God, when we follow our selfish desires and turn from the ways of Jesus, we experience God as as wrath and punishment it's not like we turn our backs and God smacks us on the head instead we turn our backs and he allows us to walk away from him from his love and from his grace and then we experience the pain of being apart from him and the pain of our consequences of our actions but understand that when God passes judgment in this way by giving us over to go in the destructive path that we want to go in. He's doing this with a purpose. Romans 2.4 says, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? While we might turn ourselves away from God, he doesn't turn away from us. And that's the good news. He patiently waits for us to realize that we're heading on the wrong path. Hoping that one day we'll turn around and say, the way I'm choosing to go is not working for me. It's just making my life more miserable for me and for others. It's causing me harm. It's causing other harms, others harm. I need Jesus to set me on the right path. So in that way, God's kindness leads us back to him. With kindness, perseverance, and patience, God hands us over with the hope that we will repent, turn around, and reach out for his salvation once again. My friends, God's wrath only exists because he loves us so much and because we keep turning away from him. As we go through Romans, we're going to learn more and more about how truly amazing and gracious and compassionate our God is and how He is willing to go through hell and suffering so that, so that we can find life and be restored in Him again. If you're one of those Christians that's constantly judging other people for their theology or how they're going against God's will, I want to challenge you to consider... Why are you so quick to judge? And with what attitudes are you judging? It's one thing to be concerned about somebody and and the decisions they're making in life. And it's another thing to be condemning and judgmental. Are you judging from a position of superiority? Either you're better than them or you know better than them. So you can tell them that they're wrong. Well, if that's the case, listen to what Paul says here. At whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. We're all on the same page here. We're all in the same place of brokenness. We're all united in our sinfulness. But if you are going to judge, can I suggest, somehow, try and do it like God does it? With kindness, with forbearance, and with patience. Or better yet, just let God be the judge. He's the perfect judge. And your job is just to love your neighbor. Point people to Jesus. Point people to the Bible. Point people to the church. But don't point the finger at people and condemn them. Because if you live by that game, you're actually condemning yourself. Amen. Amen.